Last words are lasting words. Last words are lasting words. You know, young people tend to to talk a lot and try to do a lot. But as you get older, you realize life is short. I'd better make my time count. I'd better use it well. I'd better use my words well. And at the end of life, the very end, this is especially true. I'll, I'll never forget time near the end of uh, Emily's grandmother's life when she was nearing her uh, time with Jesus and was not always able to put words together. She was uh, sleeping a lot. And yet when her unsaved family came in, she got a second wind of sorts and she sat up and she delivered the most clear sentences we'd heard in some days, telling them who Jesus was and what he had done for them, and the response that was required so that they could have their sins forgiven in a home in heaven. She knew that her last words would be lasting words, and she wanted to make them count, and praise God, she did. Here in the book of 2 Timothy, we find Paul's last words, and they are lasting words that would resound in Timothy's life. And it's critical that we allow them to resound in our life as well. As we move into 2 Timothy, it's been just a couple of years since the book of 1 Timothy was completed. Two, three, perhaps four years. Timothy's location hasn't changed. He's still pastoring in this major city of Ephesus. But Paul, we now find, imprisoned in Rome. This letter is written very shortly before he dies, perhaps a mere days before he would be beheaded. And his situation in in the Roman prison is not a plush one. It's not comfortable. It's not fancy. It's a damp, musty, basement cellar type prison. You might imagine in today's terms a little bit like sitting in your crawl space during the month of April where it's been raining and it's very wet everywhere. And you're chained to the cinder block walls. And as happens when the rain comes down, there's ants everywhere running across you and maybe a few rats running across your ankles looking for breadcrumbs. This is where Paul has been for quite some time. It's not a pleasant situation. And these are his final words to Timothy. And what we'll read is a deeply, deeply personal letter here in 2 Timothy. Paul speaks with immense joy and gratitude, and absolute, resolute confidence in the gospel. It's been said that in 1 Timothy, you have a major concern for the church along with his concern for Timothy. But the dominance is on the church. And in 2 Timothy, it's flipped. Yes, he still has concern for the church, but it's a dominant concern for his beloved child, Timothy. And there's a personal nature to 2 Timothy that we need to catch as we move through it. And we see Paul's situation and the joy with which he writes, and we're immediately forced to ask ourselves, how then do I find this kind of deep joy in all facets of life? Whether I'm sitting by the fire with my family enjoying a nice night, or stuck in a musty, dark, rat-infested prison. Whether I love my job and I can't wait to get up and go to work, or I hate that I can't find a job. 
whether I see God at work all over my life and I just can't believe all the things I see him doing, or I can't fathom how he could possibly be at work in this season of life. How like Paul do I find joy in every aspect? That's what we're going to be looking at here in 2 Timothy. And this passage begins with four times a repetition of either the word remember or remind. Verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6. Over and over, Paul, in essence, is remembering what God has done. And as he remembers, is instructing us at the exact same time to remember. That's why the sermon is titled, Disciples Remember. And it'll form our outline, three different things to remember. We remember God's work, we remember God's servants, we remember God's gift. It's our three major points. Let's start with the first then, remember God's work. Look back at verse 1, and I hope you'll keep your copy of God's Word open as we continually go back to it. Here's what we read in verses 1 and 2. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, if I'm writing this letter to Timothy, I might think that my first comments will be, hey, hugs to everyone, or a little bit anecdotal about, hey, here's what's going on in my life. Here's where I'm located now. But right out of the gate, we see Paul opening with a very theological kind of greeting. He's writing out of a God-centered view of his life that challenges all of us to consider, do I have the same kind of God-centered view of life that Paul had? He says, look, Timothy, I'm not here by accident. This isn't a surprise. It's because I'm an apostle. That's why I'm in prison. And why am I an apostle? Because of the eternal will of God. He's the one at work in my life. I'm not an apostle because some church made me one. I'm not an apostle because my mentor suggested it to me. I'm not an apostle because I wanted to be and I self-nominated myself. This is the will of God that I was an apostle and that I'm here and he goes on, he says, and this is according to the promise of life. Timothy, no, my future is totally secure. God is sovereignly at work, yes, in bringing me here, and God is sovereignly securing where I'm going. Don't lose sight of that, Timothy. It's a promise, a certainty of life. And then he says, Timothy, don't, don't miss this. God will sovereignly meet every single need of yours as well. Grace will come to you. Mercy will come to you. Peace will come to you, Timothy. God will provide for all you need. Not necessarily everything you want, Timothy, because I don't have everything I want in this jail cell right now. But it'll give you everything you need. And the interesting thing is, if we were to keep reading in this letter, we'd see that this big view of God, a God-centered view of life, and an emphasis on his sovereignty, is not something that Paul restricts both to himself and to Timothy. If you drop down to verse 9, this actually is something we'll cover next week, but you see the idea being considered here and expanded. Here's what he says. He keeps going on, this God-centered view of life. He says, God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. See, Paul says, yes, it's true of my life. Timothy, it's true of your life. It's true of all the Christians there in Ephesus. See life with me at the center. 
Simply stated, to say that God is sovereign, it's kind of a a church word, it means this, that God is in complete control of everything. It's a very simple definition. And as soon as we begin to talk about God being in complete control of everything, his sovereignty, all sorts of questions come up, right? Some would say, is this actually biblical? Or others would say, well, if God is totally in control of everything, then why bother with anything? Doesn't God's sovereignty undercut the need for me to go do anything? God's going to do it anyways. But perhaps on a more personal level, sometimes we ask, is the sovereignty of God something that I'm supposed to dutifully accept or joyfully rejoice in? And I think it's that latter part that Paul has in view here of not a dutiful acceptance, but a joy-inducing doctrine that God is completely in control. I want to show that to you from a couple of passages this morning. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, listen to how Paul writes of the joy. He says, we should always give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, beloved by the Lord. Why? Because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. We give thanks that God was sovereignly working in bringing you to faith and in your growth as a Christian. He's the one at work and we praise the Lord for it. Or consider Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 28, one of the most famous passages in the New Testament. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. All right, pause. That's the Hobby Lobby verse, right? It's on every single banner in there, all the signs, all that. Yes, we're rejoicing in that. We find comfort in that. We're glad to know that God is working in all things for our good. And Paul goes on under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to explain, and what's the grounding of that? Why can I have that joy? Here we go, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. These whom he justified, he also glorified. You see very clearly what Paul is saying here. That the sovereignty of God here is the grounding for my joy and my rejoicing that he is in complete control of everything and I can remember his work in all seasons of life. And while I'm in prison here, I can still rejoice knowing that God is working this for his good pleasure, for God's glory and for my good. Yes, God's sovereignty is not something to be dutifully accepted but gladly rejoiced in. And no, it doesn't undercut, it doesn't undercut our effort either, because Paul would go right against that idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 10. You see it on the screen. Here's what he says. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Yeah, his grace must produce great effort in my life. Otherwise, Paul says, his grace would have been in vain. But no, it pushed me to work harder and strive so that others would know it as well. There's a famous passage in Acts chapter 18 where Paul is in the city of Corinth. He's coming under persecution. He's thinking of leaving the city. And God comes and says, no, no, I'm in complete control, and there are people in this city I'm going to save, so you just stay right where you're at, Paul, because I'll protect you sovereignly from persecution, and I will work sovereignly through your preaching to save some. Here's what it says. This is Acts 18, verses 9 through 11. 
The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Do you see the beauty of that? Yes, God's sovereignty brings joy in our lives, but it also fuels our effort to stay in the midst of difficulty and preach the gospel when it doesn't look like there's hope. And God says, yes, that's how my sovereignty works. It gives you a secure, the secure investment and a hope that I will bring this fruit from it. Stay at it. Keep working. Of course, when you try to talk about how much God is in control of everything, studying the sovereignty of God, it can be confusing. Anybody ever had your head hurt trying to study the sovereignty of God? I put myself in that group. Like, how does all this work? Let me make three really quick comments. Number one, we have to recognize that as the finite man, we're trying to wrap our minds around the infinite God. And there are parts of an infinite God that will never be fully grasped by finite man. We have to have room for that space in our theology that I can know God, I can understand God, I can grow towards God, but I'm not going to fully wrap my mind around every single aspect. There's mystery involved. Number two, there are, I don't know how many books about this, millions, billions, trillions, probably more, but we have one really short one in the bookstore I'd recommend you. It's only 120 pages by J.I. Packer called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Helpful book if you want to study a little more. That was number two. Third quick comment. I do think there's a specific point Paul is making here in 2 Timothy chapter 1 about seeing God's work, a God-centered view of life and his sovereignty here. And I think the point he's making is this. He's saying, I'm in a season of suffering nearing death at the hands of the Roman government, and it's incredibly important, Timothy, you know, that I am not here by accident. I am right where God wants me, and I can have joy in this because I know that it's God's work that I am here, and he's working in and through me. It's the promise of life to come that is sovereignly secured. Verse 2, he talks about grace and mercy and peace that will come to Timothy. God will sovereignly meet your needs, Timothy. And so if you jump from their situation to our situation, I can encourage you, friends, with this truth, that God has you right where he wants you, if you are one of his children, if you've turned to him in faith and in repentance. And your eternal home is secure, and it can never be thwarted. It can never be taken away. And along the way, until you get there, just like Paul said to Timothy, God will meet your needs. He will not give you what we want, but he will give us what we need. So that he could say, if Jesus really lived and really died and really rose again, then for those who really have placed their faith and trust in him, everything is going to be okay. It may not be okay on this side of eternity, but in the long view, it will be okay. Maybe you imagine it this way. Here in Indiana, we're coming up on tornado season before too long. And imagine that two people have their homes destroyed by a tornado. And they go to the insurance company. And one person finds out that the insurance agent has been fiddling with the numbers. And upon complete destruction of the home, receives 1% of the home's value. 
everything destroyed, you had a $300,000 home, and you get an insurance payout of three grand. Now imagine your other neighbor goes to the insurance company and finds that the insurance agent has also been fiddling with the numbers. And this insurance agent says, actually, you get 10x the value of your home. You had a $300,000 home, and you get a $3 million payout. Now, the next season, when tornadoes come through, both people are going to be afraid of the tornado, are they not? This, is going to, this could be really difficult. This could put us into major hardship. But one of those people will face the tornado with far more hope and confidence and joy that everything is going to be okay here. Because there's a security that's been accomplished and proven by that insurance agent throughout their prior actions. And Jesus comes along and says, yes, there's a security and a future hope that I can provide for you that goes beyond anything else. And so you'll still be afraid of the difficulties in this life. But there's hope in them. And of course, the analogy breaks down because you say, well, what if somebody died from them? No money can bring that person back. And Jesus says, yes, I get it. I'm the better insurance agent that doesn't just give you money, but offers resurrection life so that those who die are made whole and new and given eternal life together with me in glory. And there's nothing that can ever take it away. Paul says, Timothy, remember God's work. Wherever you are in life, remember it. Never lose sight of it. He is doing the work to bring you where you are. We'll carry it on all the way to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Amen. Praise God. Never lose sight of it. There's an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, 2 Corinthians 4, waiting for those who trust in him. Second point, remember God's servants. We're asking, like Paul is in prison, how do we find joy like him, whatever circumstances we're in? First, remember God's work, but second, remember God's servants. We pick up in verse 3. Here's what we read. I thank God, whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith. A faith that, faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. We see Paul looking back, remembering past servants from his own family and from Timothy's family. He's filled with joy to look back and see prior generations who have served God faithfully. Like we just sang this morning, as saints of old still wind the way, retelling stories of his grace. Hebrews 12, are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Let us press on. That's what Paul's saying right here. Remember those who have come before. He talks about his ancestors. We don't know precisely who he has in view. But then he zeroes in on Timothy's mom and on his grandma. Grandma Lois, mom Eunice. We know that Timothy's dad wasn't a believer we don't know exactly the whole story of, of what was going on there, but we do know the major spiritual formation in Timothy's life came from his mom and his grandma. Ladies, this is really important that you hear this, and you don't miss the significance. God used those women mightily in discipling young Timothy. And you might be here this morning, you might be married to someone who isn't a believer, you might be wishing that your believing husband would step up and lead spiritually. 
And at this point, he's not. Look how God used these women mightily in difficult circumstances, investing in young Timothy in the eternal harvest of righteousness that came as they're teaching him to memorize Scripture over the breakfast table. And over the dinner table, how they're singing hymns of the faith together. How they're teaching Timothy to read the Bible and to understand what it means. How they pray together for kids in Timothy's first grade class. Don't lose sight of the discipleship moms and grandmas that's entrusted to you. And men, I know Timothy's dad isn't in the picture here, but you're called to lead here as well. Don't step back and say, well, it worked all right for Eunice and for, for Lois, so I can just take a back seat and let the ladies take the role on this one. I'll provide the funds for the family. They'll provide the spiritual guidance for the family. They'll get us to church. No, guys, step up. We need you here too. But God in his sovereignty chose to use the ladies here, and I praise God for them. I say, ladies, we're, we're so glad for the investment you're making in the next generation. Imitate Lois, Lois. Imitate Eunice. Strive to teach the next generation the wondrous works of God, like Psalm 78 talks about. And Paul's not looking back only to ancestors. He's also looking in a present tense sort of way, at Timothy. He's looking around, remembering his close friend. Verse 2, he's called the beloved child. There's a father-son relationship of sorts here. Paul was Timothy's spiritual father of sorts. Other points, he goes beyond being called a child in the faith, but there's a, a co-worker, a gospel minister, a trusted partner to where in Philippians 2, the progression continues, and Paul would say of Timothy, I have no one like him. Not a one. I trust him more than anyone else. He says, I remember you constantly in my prayers, both day and night. I remember your tears, Timothy. Timothy, I long to see you. I long to be filled with joy. Timothy, I'm reminded of the sincerity of your faith. Will you read this note to young Tim? And it's just filled with deep personal affection, isn't it? You just hear this genuine love oozing out. Oh, Timothy, I want to be with you. If I can just tell you, I was, I was reading the passage this week, and I'm thinking, man, when I'm on my deathbed writing letters to my friends, I want friends like that. I want to be able to write letters like that. I want friends who will write like that to me. So I long to see you. You refreshed me constantly when we were together. I remember the tears we shed together. Here we find Paul having deeply invested in others and taking great joy in watching them spread their wings and fly towards Jesus. It's easy to read it and say, I want to get there. But the question that kind of becomes apparent in our minds is, well, how exactly do I get to that spot? How do I make those investments when I'm 12 years old? and 22 years old, and 32, and 42, such that when I'm 72, I could say, I've got friends like that. Let me just state the obvious. We don't get there simply by playing lots of fantasy football together. We don't get there just by trading lots of Snapchats. 
We don't have that kind of genuine affection and love for one another just because we drink a lot of coffee together at Flapjacks or gather at Northwest Community Park for a lot of play dates. Those are all good and fine things to do, but alone those don't bring us there. And if I can just kind of take you into my mind's eye of what I think Paul and Timothy might have been thinking about here, they're taking a walk down memory lane. It's like Paul is writing to Timothy. He says, Timothy, I wish you could be here in Rome and I could be free and we could just go for a a walk on the greenway here in Rome. And we could put our arms around each other and remember, Timothy, you remember that evangelistic Bible study we did in your neighborhood? You remember that one dude? (laughs) Seemed like he'd never come and you kept inviting him and it seemed like he'd never become a Christian. And on the fourth time we read through the gospel of Mark, Timothy, you remember when he saw that Jesus was God and he needed a savior and he became a Christian? Timothy, I remember that. Timothy, you remember all those years we prayed for your dad, far from God. You remember that one year? Every single Wednesday we fasted and prayed urgently that God would work in his life. You remember that, Timothy? I remember that. This is Timothy. You remember those satanic attacks through gossip in the church? It was agonizing the way we felt beat down by other Christians. But Timothy, you stuck with me. You remember that? You remember the tears we shed together and how painful it was? Yeah, I remember that. Timothy, you remember when I felt so defeated by sin? I kept doing the same thing over and over. I was so frustrated. I wasn't sure if I was a Christian for a while, Timothy. And Timothy, you came alongside me and you visited me. We read the scriptures together. And you weren't afraid to ask me hard questions, Timothy. And you stuck with me. Do you remember that? I remember it. Timothy, you remember when my mom got sick? I was out of town. We were planting that church a couple hours away. And I couldn't be back to be with her. And Timothy, you went and sat by your bed every night. And you read God's word to her. And you prayed for her. Timothy, I love you. Thank you. Says Timothy, You remember that time we got together and we read the book of Isaiah, all 66 chapters that one time. Yeah, there was some weird stuff in there. We didn't always know what was going on, but Timothy, that was one of the best times we ever had. All our friends looked at us like we were crazy, but I'll never forget that with you, Timothy. Timothy, you remember that one time I was starting to get distracted with Roman politics And you came to visit me, and you reminded me that that Roman guard next to me was a guy made in the image of God who needed Jesus. And I need to be focused on preaching the gospel to him. And Timothy, that guy got saved because you reminded me. You remember that? That's what I think Paul's remembering here. Over and over and over through the years. Remembering this deep co-laboring in the gospel. And the joy that it produced in the good times and in the bad. And look, Paul's not some sit-around-the-campfire kumbaya kind of guy. You know that's not him. He's like off to the next major city, plan a church, do the next thing. But even in his type A personality, whatever you want to call that, whatever personality style you want to use, he sees there is a core joy in God's church in relationships, in laboring together for things that matter, because we need each other. And I remember that with Timothy, he says. 
Park said, if I I could say it this way, there is deep joy that God intends for each of us as we co-labor in the gospel, not just coexist as Hoosiers. There is a deep joy that God intends for us as we co-labor in the gospel, not just coexist as Hoosiers. And maybe you hear me talk about that, and you can see Paul writing in that way with this personal affection for Timothy. You're like, yeah, it sounds good. I'd like something like that. But here I am at 56 years old, and I've never quite experienced that sort of thing. How do I start now? Friends, I simply say this. It happened for Paul. It happened for Timothy. That can be a reality for you as well. But it does take somebody reaching out to a friend and saying, man, What Pastor Justin was talking about, and we saw in 2 Timothy, I want something kind of like that. And I don't know quite what it looks like, and it might be weird for me to say this to you, but could we get together this week? And you just tell the person what's on your heart. I want to pray for these guys in my neighborhood who aren't Christians. These guys at my company. He keeps saying we're supposed to read the Bible together. Let's start with John 1. That's not quite as long as Luke 1. There's like 80 verses in that one. Let's try that this week. And in slow, basic steps together, over time, you grow a friendship into a Christian fellowship that's based on co-laboring in the gospel together. And Paul, at the end of his life, in prison, in a terrible situation, says, I have deep joy in remembering God's servants. Those who poured into you, Timothy, from the time you were two, all the way now up to our relationship, Timothy, when you're 42. That's how we find joy in all circumstances, to be linking arms with one another, growing through relationships like the banner says. It brings us to Paul's third remembrance. He says, remember God's gift. Yes, remember God's work. None of this is an accident. God has his hand upon you. Remember God's servants because there's joy in walking together. But lastly, remember God's gift. Look at verse 6. We continue reading. For this reason, I remind you, Timothy, to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Remember God's gift, Timothy. What's the gift that's in view here? What's Paul referring to? Well, it seems to be some kind of a gift for pastoral ministry that Timothy's been given. It was given through the laying on of hands. Perhaps that's what we call an ordination or commissioning service. We did that a few weeks ago for Pastor John and Pastor Austin. We're going to have a commissioning service uh, at the end of April for Ben and Maria Walker, and we'll give you more information. But that's the kind of event they have in view here. But it's not as if this is restricted to Timothy. Timothy's not the only one who's received a gift from the Lord. Certainly, he received a particular kind of gift. But every Christian has received gifts from the Lord. The gift of salvation, the gift of the Holy Spirit, set of spiritual gifts that are used to build up the body of Christ and to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And the clear instruction given to Timothy that can be applied to us as well is this. Look to fan this gift into a flame. Fan it into a flame. It's like the pictures you're around a campfire, and you've been sitting for a little while, and you've let the flame go low. And there's maybe some embers burning there, and you could stack up the wood how you want to, 
But at some point, you're going to have to get out of your chair and hold up a piece of paper or cardboard or something and blow on it and start to fan that thing into flame so the embers will take off and catch again. That's what Paul's saying to Timothy. Timothy, get out of your seat. Get up, get moving, and fan this thing into flame so that it's hot and burning, and God will do something amazing here. And it's almost as if young Timothy doesn't quite know how this works. Because in 1 Timothy 4, Paul says, Timothy, don't neglect the gift you have. And here he says, okay, you don't neglect it, fan it into flame. Timothy, it seems, t- tends towards timidity. He tends towards fear. He doesn't tend towards action and boldness. You might say Timothy is more likely to lean on spiritual fathers than to lead spiritual sons. Some of you say, yeah, that's me. I'm used to leaning on spiritual fathers. And I need to grow in leading spiritual sons. I lean on spiritual mothers. Praise God, you should do that. But you should also grow in leading spiritual daughters. Timothy, fan this into flame and get after it. And it's interesting, I do think sometimes we think of being on fire for God as this like existential experience that passively comes on to us. It usually comes when you're a teenager one or two times at summer camp, maybe on occasion on a mission trip, and you just kind of wait around until you're on one of those mountaintop, maybe a conference-type experience. But according to 2 Timothy 1.6, that passively waiting to be on fire for God is a profoundly unbiblical view. Paul says, Timothy, get up out of your seat, man. Go fan the flame. Recognize God provides the wood. God provides the matches. God calls down the fire. But you can organize the wood. And you can fan it into flame so that it will grow from a little, little flame there into a raging fire where God is using you mightily for his work and for his kingdom. Verse 7 says this, God's given us not a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. In other words, Timothy, here's what you're at. You're, you're predisposed towards fear. There's a lot of things that worry you. But Timothy, when you get your eyes fixed on the gospel and you fan the flame, you're going to start to see things through a lens of power and love and self-control. And there's many parts of the Christian life that could be in view, but I think the one specifically in view here is how we proclaim Christ, both to believers and to unbelievers. And the reason I think that's true is from verse 8. So look down, I know it's next week's passage a bit, but it, it informs this. Here's what it says. Timothy, do not be ashamed about the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Yeah, fan it into flame. Don't be afraid to testify to these things, but testify to them with power and love and self-control. It's as if back in that day, there was a fear for Timothy. People would look at him and say, wait, you're following that Jesus guy, the guy that got crucified? Yeah, you're clearly on the wrong side of history, bro. Oh, you were the guy that hung out with Paul. That guy in federal prison that got the death penalty? Yeah, wrong side of history, bro. And you move it to the modern day, and there's a fear to shrink back and say, wait, you believe what about gender and sexuality? Wrong side of history, bro. You believe that we shouldn't listen to our heart? That I'm actually not supposed to be true to myself, but I'm supposed to deny myself? Don't be ashamed of it. 
Lean into who God is and what he has said and see you are called to live out of a spirit of power and love and self-control, not fear of what others will say about the testimony of Christ. You see, when you start to look at it that way, you realize first century Ephesus may not have had iPhones, but it wasn't that different than our day today, is it? The same fears gripped them that grip us. And so Paul in verse 7 reminds Timothy of three aspects of the gospel that will fuel this fire in his heart, his love for God, of what it looks like and what it means to follow Jesus. He says, Timothy, there's a spirit of power. If they were in person, you could almost hear Paul saying, hey, Timothy, you remember the power of the gospel that broke into my life? You know my story, man. You know how I hated God, how I hated Christians. You knew how I was trying to kill Christians. You remember the power of the gospel that broke in and turned my life around on a quick 180? Yes, Timothy, it's powerful. Maybe your mind goes to Romans 1.16. Paul writes, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation. It is the very power of God. And Timothy knew this, but he needed to be reminded See, Timothy had written a letter with Paul, the letter of 1 Thessalonians. They were joint authors of it. Here's what Timothy wrote in 1 Thessalonians 1. He says, The gospel came to you, church in Thessalonica, not only in word, but also in power. It wasn't just black words on a white page. There was power in it. And Timothy knew it, but he needed to be reminded. Park said, you need to be reminded of that. That Jesus is the conquering king. He came, he conquered sin and death and hell and Satan, rose again, saying, I'm the victor, and there's power in my name, power in no other name, based on my finished work on the cross and my resurrection from the dead. Go tell people who I am. There's power here. It's as if Paul is saying to Timothy, 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 God is more interested in your availability than your ability because he's in process of using weak people, flawed people all over the place with his own power. Timothy, if, if God can use stuttering Moses and hothead Peter and sex-crazed Solomon, Timothy, he can use you too in your fears. So get your eyes fixed on the power of the gospel and don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. This is not just power though, Timothy, it's love. Remember the love that is in the gospel shown in all its perfections. The Father's love to send the Son at great cost to himself. The Son's showing his love in coming to die. The ultimate sacrifice. Ensuring that you can be deeply known and deeply loved at the exact same time. You don't have to fear the things that you don't want to tell people here. Jesus already knows them. He knows all of them, even the ones you're trying to hide from him in the corners of your heart. And he loves you entirely. Remember that, Timothy. Don't lose sight of it. Timothy, you'll be tempted to seek somebody's approval here and say the things they want to hear. Remember, Timothy, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. You already have his approval. So go on boldly proclaiming yes in power and also in love. But also, Timothy, in self-control. Go forward in self-control because Satan wants nothing else except to distract you away from what I've called you to. That flame is starting to roar. You're filled with the power of the gospel, the love of Jesus. You're compelled. I got to go tell somebody. You feel the flame building 
And Satan wants nothing more than to take a wet blanket and just come throw it over you, Timothy, and suffocate it. He wants to take the wet blanket of the cares of this world that will grip your attention and your affections and your desires and just pull you away. And Timothy, you have self-control or recognize, no, I don't need those things. I have something far better, Jesus. And I might want those things. I confess that I want those things, but I've got something better. And Timothy, look out, because you're going to want to stop. Your friends are going to desert you. They're going to stab you in the back, Timothy. You're going to feel totally isolated. Exercise self-control, Timothy, and remember that the same God who is coming to this earth will never leave you. He will never forsake you, and you can keep going. Be resolute, Timothy. Recognize that the grace of God trains us for self-control. That's what Titus 2 says. I don't white-knuckle my way to self-control. I recognize the grace that's been shown to me. As I fall into grace, it inspires me to press on, resisting the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, seeing the wonder at what God has done for me. Timothy, go forward in power and in love and in self-control and remember the gift that God has given to you. Fan it into flame, Timothy. Make it really hot. Make it so hot that your neighbors wonder what kind of bonfire you got going on over there. Keep it going. Add some more wood to it, Timothy. Get together with God's people. And together, two of you can fan it into flame. And get together and study my word and remember my works, Timothy. Because when you see what I did last year and 10 years ago and 100 years ago, you'll be filled with power and confidence to keep going. How do you find joy in all of these circumstances, Timothy? Remember. Remember God's work. Remember his servants. And remember his gift. And press forward, Timothy. I look forward to seeing you soon, he says. Let's pray.